Welcome to the Storyteller's Tavern. My name is Mush Hughes. And I'm Lee Northup. And together, we talk with makers and artists to learn more about the stories behind their projects and their creative journey so far. Thanks for joining us here in the Tavern. Our storyteller today is Jaybird the Vandal. Now, we were introduced to Jaybird through Joel, another Queen City maker who you may remember opened this whole chapter up. Joel described Jaybird as a tinkerer, and indeed, his Instagram profile starts simply and all-inclusively with, I make things. Jaybird has street art, murals, and graffiti all over Charlotte, and stories and skill sets that have taken him much further than just our city. We hear from Jaybird about ignoring the instructions, being content with Wheel of Fortune, and the wilderness survival, streetlights, taco shops, and other experiences that have marked his journey so far. Welcome back to the tavern. Folks, we're getting towards the end of chapter two, and I'm excited to introduce everyone today to Jaber. Jaber the Vandal, um, welcome to the tavern. Hi, thanks for having me. Awesome. Stoked to be here. We're glad to be here. We're glad that you are here. Um, wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got to be doing it. Um, I do a little bit of everything. <laughs> um, so I, I'm a street artist. Uh, I, I paint murals for a living, but um, yeah, I come from a blue collar family, so have extensive blue-collar background. I'm, I'm a carpenter by trade. Um, I've walked many paths, um, so I'm, I know I'm pretty good with my hands. <laughs> so uh, yeah, just whatever pays the bills. Like, um, like I said, it's, it's mostly um, street art and art, but you know, everything from music to carpentry to um, creative building. So. When we got introduced, it was through a mutual friend, Joel, who was actually the first episode of chapter two. And he was like, yeah, I need you guys to meet Jay Bird because he's, he's kind of a lot like you guys. Yes, he's a street artist, but he's also kind of a self-proclaimed tinkerer. So like you're saying, you like to work with your hands. Where did that love for tinkering kind of get started? How old were you? Where did it, where did it kind of come from? How did that whole fire get lit? Um, you know, my mom talks about this from a very early age. Like I never read instructions to anything. And, you know, if you didn't read the instructions to Transformers back in the day, like the old school ones, it's some of those were like impossible, but I refused to read, to read the instructions, even with Legos. I'm like, I'm gonna, and you can't put together a Lego set without reading the instructions, but I was that kid. I'm like, I'm going to do this without reading the instructions. And so, and also if, if it was something that was already built, I had to take it apart and figure out what made it work. Sometimes I couldn't get it back together, and sometimes I did, and sometimes I got it back together better than it was in the first place. But I was always tearing my toys apart, and uh, my dad was uh, an electrician, electrical engineer, and we always had like a box of Frankenstein parts that we would put together to make things for you know my science fairs at school or whatever, just just to make things. Um, you know, my dad was a tinkerer too. You know. Um, an art for the sake of art type of guy. Like I remember uh, just collecting rocks and building like stone houses, like bird houses, just by gluing rocks together. Cool. And, and we would do like split bamboo roofs on it and stuff. And it was just, it's just something you did, you know? It's, um, yeah, just making things out of popsicle sticks. That's how I came, my dad was. And so, you know, I got that from him. And it's so interesting because I think a lot of people our age, and I know Mush is only 23 years old this year, but um, as we don't have 
these kids that are comfortable taking stuff apart. And, you know, if there's stuff breaks, they go buy a new one or whatever. And I, I do think that a lot of us grew up in a world where, you know what, you take this stuff apart and you put it back together and it yeah. might not, like you said, it might fit together better. It might fit together worse. You might have broken the heck out of it, but you know what, you had some fun and you probably learned something along the way. And I think these kids are so scared of breaking things in so many ways. And um, you know, I think that leads to a lot of kind of our maker mindset is that we were never afraid to break something. Right. Well, we're also in a different world. So I grew up on a farm in the early, early years. Um, my grandparents had a farm and we had a tiny house on that property. And my grandfather, was, he built bridges. He, he was in uh, road construction and steel work. And um, everything on our property was built. He built the barn that the animals in, he put up all the fence. Like, you know, even my dad and my uncles, like, you know, broke our horses for riding. Like, that was all done there. Um, nowadays, though, you, you think when, when we broke something, we had to fix it. It was much different nowadays. It's not like your kid can drop their iPad and then pick it up and fix it. Right. You know, that that's a completely different world from what we were coming up with. But I, that was how it was, too. My first car, you know, you didn't take it to the mechanic. Like, you went and you bought the manual. Sure. And, and you you figured it out. And, and most of the time, it was my stepdad sitting there in the chair telling me how to do it and not doing anything, you know. And it was up on center blocks in the yard. And that's how you learn how to do things. I can actually feel those automobile manuals, like, in my hand right oh, now yeah. because I had about seven of them. <laughs> and there was one time that I actually had three cars and two motorcycles in my driveway. And my mother... She said, if you get rid of three of those, I will actually buy you a car that works. And she just wanted the house to get cleaned up. But yeah, it was the same thing. Like something would go wrong with my car and I would, I would fix it or try to fix it. Or, you know, and then I just buy another $200 jalopy that um, would, would get there. But I totally agree with you about the fact that the kids aren't comfortable, you know, like if they break their iPad, they're not going to be able to fix it. And right. we have a dryer and that when it broke and the guy came over and he's like, don't ever get rid of this dryer. And I was like, dude, this dryer's 15 years old. He's like, but you can fix it. He's like, this dryer is made to be fixed because it's yeah. 15 years old. He said, new dryers are made to just be thrown in the garbage. And that sucks for, you know, these kids aren't comfortable with any of that because we live, we grew up in a different time where you actually could fix these things. No, I agree. Um, I mean, all of my vehicles are, are older, and I can, uh, all my vehicles are older, and I can fix them, and, uh, you know, I'm hesitant to get anything newer because of that, mm -hmm. you know, like, um, yeah, you, I mean, you can crawl, like, into the hood of my, my 64 Ford and get in there with the engine and fix whatever you wanted, you know, and it's like, you know, it's that theory that's like the fewer moving parts, the more reliable it's going to be. Yep. You know, just like your dryer. It's like, it's simple. It works. You can fix it. You know, there's not an onboard computer that, you know, tells you what the ambient temperature in the room is or something. <laughs> I've got a 66 Ford, so we're going to have to talk oh, about that in the uh, after show, <laughs> if, if you will. So let's dive into kind of the street art piece, because I've always been fascinated with that. Like back in my day, um, there was Cool Disco Dan as you were driving through, like the taking the metro on um, in downtown Washington, D.C. And, you know, graffiti was always this like kind of just cool thing that, you know, uh, it's neat to hear you talk about like you get paid to do murals. And like that's your that's your day job is to do, to do murals. But also your passion is street art. So where did that passion come from? How did that take off? Did it? 
take off? And maybe you can't say this, but did it take off legally or were you doing stuff, you know, kind of on the street corner because you wanted to? Oh, it was definitely legal <laughs> at first. Um, it's it's kind of weird. So the most important things in my life all kind of came together at the same time. Um, so I, I, I wasn't really recognizing street art for what it was when I saw it. I, you know, growing up, um, so music and skateboarding in my teen years were super important to me, yes. right? And whenever you watched any skateboard videos, there, all, there was always great graffiti in these skate spots sure. and skate parks. Um, and uh, I, I became obsessed with that. Like I wanted to know who did that and why it was there. You know, just it, it always looked so cool to me. Wanted to try it out. Um, and then uh, out of necessity, just like out of DIY, like um, when I was in bands, I, I've been in bands since I was 13 years old. I, like I, I played my first show at 15. Um, I learned how to cut stencils because I watched a Clash video and the Clash had like the Clash London stenciled on all their road cases. And I thought that was cool. So I cut a stencil with my band's name on it because we had all our gear had to be seen, even though sure. we weren't going anywhere. <laughs> we had to have like all our gear stenciled. And then after that, I found out that you could uh, do a, a cheap kind of like one run screen print style with a stencil. Cut a stencil, lay it down in a screen, and you could do a run of shirts. So I was cutting stencils to make t-shirts for my band and flyers for my band and to stencil our gear and I wasn't really thinking of it as an art form but you know when we were coming up uh, flyers were very important that that's a, a culture that's been lost mm. you know it used to be um, telephone poles were covered with with posters for all the arts event uh, art events and and pop rock shows and and whatever was going on raves were like really big back then and I was I really liked the artwork of the flyers and and that really influenced me and it was something that I was doing for my own band and I was building these skills um, that I didn't really realize what I was doing that I was like actually just adding skills to the toolbox uh, while I was doing this so my style comes from uh, skateboard graphics which a lot of early skateboards were screen printed so they were not a whole lot of colors and usually bold outlines if you look at the sides of old um, arcade machines like the original Pac-Man and Galaga and all that those were stencil sets mm. um, and they have a very distinct look like because of because of that so I like began to like fall in love with that style of um, like retro graphic and I, I think you can still see that if you look at the art that I, I do today it comes from retro graphic it comes from album covers the sides of arcade machines and skateboards um, and they all had bright colors real heavy outlines and it and it had this DIY like it, it's a niche culture so it's not like we have a, a bottomless budget we have to do it cheap just like in my punk band when I was like, I need to learn how to cut stencils so I can make cool shirts as cheap as I can make them. Um, so that's that's where it started from. I mean, I've doodled, you know, my whole life, but that was when I started kind of finding out what my art style was. And then I started writing graffiti, um, like anything very bad at first, because I didn't know what I was doing. And we were using the cheapest paint that you could get, that you could steal from grandpa's garage or whatever, or the, the dollar spray paint cans, because you only have a part-time job, you know? Like, um, and uh, cheap enamel in high pressure, it doesn't make for good graffiti, at least not clean graffiti. 
Um, so trying to learn can control and good lines and color layering with, with, with cheap paint like that was hard. Um, I eventually started figuring it out to where I was kind of okay with what I was what I was doing and then I would kind of take pauses depending on where I was at in my life and, and going back to graffiti. Um, but uh, I was <laughs> published for the first time in high school um, and it, and it sucks because I wish that there was someone around me would have encouraged that, but I was a little bit of a delinquent, so it's just like... Weren't we all? <laughs> yeah, but out of, you know, I did something really cool and then didn't really get any, like, praise or positive reinforcement for it, but um, my science teacher caught me drawing in class more than paying attention. And uh, there was a contest for Scholastic, which Scholastic was, I mean, a major publication, right? So Scholastic... Science World Magazine was doing a national contest where you could draw a comic book, a science-related comic strip, and if you won, you would get published, and they'd give you a little prize pack. And I won, and nice. I was published, and it was in all high schools nationwide, and I got like a t-shirt and a gift certificate and some other little dumb things, and there was an announcement on, on the school announcements. Um, but I remember that science teacher even being like, well, I felt like you could have done better. Huh. <laughs> and I was like, but I won. Like, how could oh I have done gosh. better? And I think it's because I had blue hair and I didn't pay attention in class. And, you know, I, I, I didn't want to be there. Um, yeah, so <laughs> the, ironically, I, got the, my, I was published for the first time in high school and I didn't get any really positive reinforcement from it. And then I'd, even when I came home and told mom and you know, I was like, oh, I've got this t-shirt and this gift certificate because I won this thing. It was kind of just, you know, it's kind of blown off. Like, you know, it's like, well, okay, well, I guess I got to do better. So, so then what was the, the first kind of catalyst for this is something, this is something I can do, this is something that like fills my bucket and gets recognition. If it wasn't a comic book in science class, um, so it's kind of like when you find something, uh, and, and, and you know, I have a 12 year old son and I've had this discussion with him right now. He hasn't found his thing, but around 12, 13 is where I found it. So like whenever you do something and you can't live without it, like it doesn't matter if you get paid or what you get out of it, like it's just the thing you want to do. Um, for me it was like playing rock and roll and riding my skateboard and, and riding graffiti and and you know the street art became a thing and it's like I just want to do this. Um, I want to put it out there. I think this is cool. I think other people think it's cool. Like I think it will impact somebody because I was impacted by the things that I saw in the background in the skateboard videos or if I was walking around the city and I'd see this piece of art and I'm like, who did that and why did they do that and what does it mean? That was when I knew that I wanted to do it. And so Shepard Ferry, who's you know from the South, um, from the Charleston area, was a big part of that because before we knew who Shepard Ferry was, we were seeing the Andre the Giant stickers, and there was that mystery of like, what is that? What does it mean? And why do I love it so much? Right. You know. Um, and it was that the mystery to it, and and I was like, I'm, this is always going to be something I do. You know, it doesn't matter how great I am at it, I'm gonna do it. It's just like riding my skateboard and writing music. It doesn't matter how good I am at it. I, I'm gonna do this forever because there's something about it that fills my soul. So like, if 
I, when I stumbled into a way to kind of make money at doing something that does that, then you know, this is this is what I do, and I've done that a couple of times with different things that I've done in my life. Like, you know, this fills my soul. I'm going to do this. It's so well said, and I think so many makers can can put those words into their life. Is this fills my soul? And you know, when you walked in, I was like, so what's your day job? Your day job is painting murals and things like that. And we're so blessed when we get to do those things for a living that fill our soul. And whether you're doing those things at 10 o'clock at night after you work that nine to five, or whether you get you know, somebody actually gives you a paycheck to do those things. Our thing is working with kids and turning those kids into makers and hopefully finding those things that fill their soul. Like that's, um, that's what it's all about is just hunting for those things. And you, you also feel bad for the people that haven't found those things that fill their soul. And there's a lot of them out there. Well, I feel bad, but I also feel jealous sometimes. Huh. So I, I feel jealous for, uh, if you were truly happy, and you don't have a thing, there's not a thing you do. You work your nine to five and you come home and you watch your favorite TV show and you're happy. I'm a little bit jealous of if that is your contentment, like if that is how you found it, like I'm a little jealous of that. So if Wheel of Fortune fills your soul, you're jealous <laughs> of that guy. In a way. Yeah. <laughs> I, hear, yeah. I mean, if, if you're happy, if you're truly happy and, and it, it doesn't do it for me and, that, and I feel like that's why I'm always doing because I'm, I'm, I'm always chasing happiness. I'm always like right behind it. I'm not saying I'm unhappy. I really, I like, I count my blessings. I love what I do. Um, but there's something about my character and who I am that I'm always chasing something. And I feel like I'm not arriving. Um, and I think a lot of creatives are like that. A lot of makers are like that because you make something, even if it's the best thing you ever made, you want to do better next time. Sure. Yep. And you're so critical of yourself. I think everybody listening to this <laughs> podcast right now is like, yep, uh-huh, I, yeah. I hear you. I agree. Uh, um, so in, in, in a way, like, especially as I've gotten older, I'm like, man, I wish that I could be content. But at the same time, like, I'm glad that I'm never just content. That resonates with me big time in a very deep way. And this might be like one of the deeper parts of this podcast, but my father was very much like that. My father passed away a couple of years ago and my mom and him talked about the fact that he was never content. Like he was, ne he always needed another mountain to climb. He always needed another adventure to go on and he could not, it was impossible for him to just be home and just be sitting on the couch with his kids and just be a dad and go to work and do those things. He needed the next adventure. And so I'm always very kind of reflective of that, knowing that that's part of me. Like I realize that I need, and Mush, Mush and I have been friends for a really long time and he knows I've got that itch there. It's um, last year at Maker Camp when it's one o'clock in the morning and I'm like, <laughs> I, I wonder what kind of adventures are out there. And we say, we're not done yet much. Like I, I yeah, realize I, mean, I need to go chase that next thing. Yeah, FOMO is the thing, man. Like fear of missing out or um, always trying to figure out what the next step is or like trying to, to climb the next rung on the ladder. I mean, it, it, it puts strains on our relationships too. Sure, with yeah. our kids, with our wives, with our, you right. know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it, I, I, you know, I went through a divorce. I think that a lot of that had to do with the fact that I was always chasing something. Um, and it's hard for people that don't have that same kind of mindset as us. Um, it's hard for them to wrap their mind around. It's like, 
why do you have to be going 100 miles an hour at all times? Like, why do you also, why do you have to be playing music and sneaking out the paint trains and building motorcycles and working on cars and collecting comic books or whatever it is you do and playing video games? We're kind of describing our lives. Like, you just hit it all in right. the head. And, and it's, it's hard because uh, it's, it's really intense to some people that, that don't share that, that type of mindset or, or brain. And like I said, you know, it, it, it's a curse, and sometimes I, I wish that, you know, I was the little fortune guy. <laughs> but at the end of the day, the reason I'm very content with who we are, and I say that at this table, like, because I know every single one of us shares this, you know, shares this burden, is, um, you know, somebody recently said it on the podcast, when you finish the day and you can look at something and you can be like, I made that. Or, you know, from in my adventure world, I climbed that, I rode that, I did like, I did this today. That's the way that I check the box and I can sleep well at night. If I, if I check, like if I finish my day and I'm like, I watched that or, you know, I, I read that, like that's not enough for me to fill my soul so that I can put my head on my pillow. I've got to, I've got to make some sort of impact on this earth. No, I totally relate. So. I want to go back to something you talked about a little bit ago because I loved the fact how you were attaching art to music, and that was that was really good. Um, I started a record collection in my classroom because the connection between art and music is just so important yeah, to I mean, me. It, it is art. Music is art. It's um, and just a different form. But also the visual art that goes along with music. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about like I grew up in the rave culture too, like um, and those little flyers that were stapled around. And that's the way you learned about raves is somebody would hand you this really cool graphic that you know, hey, Casper is this Saturday at you know undisclosed location, and this was where you have to be to be able to get into this rave scene or whatever. But I was always fascinated by the by the handouts, by the art that people were using, because it was always really, really good. And so the only thing that I can really capture for my students is records, um, because they just put on Apple Music or Spotify or whatever, and they it's, miss. Digital has killed the the album art, and album art was such a part of the experience. You know, you lay there on the floor and you look at the album art while you listen to the music. Correct. And so, like one of my favorite albums, and I picked this up for a dollar. I've got about 350 records in my classroom, but it's Cool in the Gang and it's Open Sesame. Um, and oh, I'm yeah, showing the double this. fold. Uh huh. Right. And it folds right up the middle. And when you open it up, all of Cool in the Gang is painted in there with their turbans on. And it's just an absolutely fascinating record because you can listen to it and you can think about that band like sitting there and thinking about like what what image is going to encapsulate what we're trying to do on this record and as musicians. Um, and so, yeah, I've got 350 of those. And a lot of times when I'm going through the record store, like sometimes I'm just buying stuff for art. Like I'm just buying stuff for the yeah. album covers and Absolutely. stuff because I want that. I want students to pick that up and be like, this is an amazing album cover. And I wonder what this sounds like or whatever. So yeah, that what you were talking about was really resonating with yeah, me. Yeah, and I mean, that was a, a huge inspiration for me, was, was um, album art and, um, like I said, skateboard art, you know? Um, and a lot of that stuff went hand in hand. Sometimes a lot of skateboard graphics were current album graphics. Um, and uh, that's what got me interested in, you know, trying to do graphics. And, um, you know, I, 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 I've flunked out of art school a couple times go back flunk out a couple times huh? yeah yeah, yeah. Fin- finally finally got a degree um but 
you know, all my friends that are graphic designers, they're all working at a sign company or something, you know, they're, you know, the dream was you're, you're designing skateboards for like Santa Cruz, you know, or like you're like, you know, surfboards for Volcom or something. And, you know, that's like that top, like, you know, 0.1%. It's like being a rock star, you know, you go into it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the way to like make it sustainable is you got to make it your own. You have to produce the product that people want on your own right um and it's also really hard you know everything that i'm into is kind of niche Mm -hmm. so it's like trying to find your market you know um so it's a good segue into how you started to get actually paid so like everything you're talking about exudes passion it talks about your heart it talks about your soul of like i'm doing this because i want to do it i'm doing this because i'm a blue-haired kid that doesn't like school that's failing out of art school on a regular basis as you just said but like kind of bucking the establishment like i think we all did at some point in time but then at some point you're like i've got this passion and somebody's going to give me some money to do it um, and I can actually pursue this and get paid and buy better paint and buy, have better resources and actually maybe even, you know, buy a house at some point, like, you know, with this skill set that I have. Because, I mean, obviously you look at your Instagram page, you're incredibly talented. So you turn that talent into a living. Um, when did that start to happen? So um, I've always been chasing the passion, trying to figure out how to get paid to do what you love, right? Um, you know, I've always been a carpenter because it was just like I have a mechanical mind and so it was just an easy way for me to make money because it, I was good at it without having to try very hard. Um, but then with playing music, like once I started playing shows and we got paid for it, I was like, wait a minute, I can get paid to do what I love? Like, I'm going to do this and I invested a whole lot of time into that. But every time in between bands, I would go back in to art because... Um, you know whether I got paid for it or not I was going to be making art like it was gonna happen like you do it you need to do it you have to make it um I uh after my divorce I was going through a hard time and and I was looking for a way to get paid to do what I love and uh I was a wilderness therapy guide for a little while so I lived in the woods basically for four years and um, I worked with um, at-risk teens at first, and that was a little problematic, but I eventually moved into adult recovering addicts in the wilderness environment, and this was me teaching primitive survival skills to adult recovering addicts, and it was me working with my hands and getting paid to do something I really loved. Even in those days, I always carried a sketchbook with me. I was always sketching. I would always go back to art. I knew that I wasn't going to be a wilderness guide forever. It wasn't. It was a thing. I I want to give back. I want to help other people because it helps me inadvertently. It was that whole quest to get paid to do something you love. So I'm teaching primitive survival skills to get paid, but I know that this isn't sustainable. I'm not. This is not my retirement plan. Like, I'm not going to hike 10 or 12 miles a day every day, like, you know, when I'm 60. Um, You know, what am I going to do? And I was kind of floundering around. you know, I'd spent so much time trying to make a living at music and kind of broke even, but was never really, you know, never really making it. I was able to sustain it for a while. And then it was, you know, what's the next thing? Um, and it's really funny that we're here doing this because uh, I was looking for a change. And when my 
that the last program I was in closed down, I I decided that it was time. That was a sign that I'm not going to go continue to do wilderness. Um, I grew up in the Charlotte area. Like I wasn't living here. I I'd, I'd, I'd moved away from here when I was 19. I'd been gone for a while. Lived at the coast. Lived up in Asheville while I was doing the wilderness guide thing. Uh, I was, I'll just rely on my skills. I'll just take a construction job. Um, and then I'll figure it out. And I did. I took a construction job and, or a maintenance job, and one of my contracts was all of the street lights in that neighborhood over there, Afton Village. Oh, it's pointed right behind us. I had so to make funny. sure that all of those street lights were always on at all times. They were on my regular route. And then I had uh, 36 sports clip stores that I, that I uh, took care of. <laughs> and I thought that, you know, maybe this is a time for me to just take a decent paying job you know and I, I was miserable like I it wasn't filling my soul sure and so um, I started working on canvas um, I, I had my first Charlotte art show and it was a flop it was really bad um, it was just canvas works at Heist Brewing and I got some friends of mine from the local music scene that like you know chipped in and like we'll play music um, nobody showed up. It was like mm. a Sunday night. It was a football night. Nobody was there. Um, but it that show hung for a month, and I sold three paintings nice. out of that. And the three paintings that sold were newer works. They made sense. And like, well, that makes sense that they sold. They're the ones that I like. If I were going to buy one of these, I'd buy those three. So while the show, the opening was a complete flop, I was like, all right, so maybe there's some sustainability to this. I'm not doing something completely terrible. I sold three paintings. Okay, like what's the next move? Um, and murals were logical, one, because of my construction background. Um, I had already had um, like a leg up on, well, I mean, I already know how to work the heavy equipment. I already know how to, to make a small image on large scale. It, it felt natural, but then it was, where, where's, where am I going to get the job? How do you do that? And then out of nowhere, um, the chef that worked, uh, the nutritionist that was on one of those wilderness programs that I worked for, um, had when, that, when our program closed, while I was looking for something to do, she was looking for something to do, and she opened a taco shop outside of Asheville. And she um, loved the stuff that she saw in my sketchbooks, and that was the first mural I ever did. She's like, I want you to do a mural for my taco shop. And she's like, I can't pay you a whole lot, but I'll pay you a little bit of money. It was a whole lot of fun. Um, it was pretty basic. It was um, like tongue-in-cheek, old-school tattoo flash with like puns about tacos. It was, um, <laughs> great. You know, and guac we trust and salsas thicker than blood and, and things like that. And I, I did it, and um, I, I made a little bit of money at it and, and had the most fun. And just like I did with everything else that happened, I was like, well, that was fun, and I got paid, so we're going to do this now. Right. Um, and then just networking. Um, I have a friend, Courtney, that was in the art scene and, and had connections, and she got me my first brewery mural in Charlotte, which was for uh, the OG by Noda Brewing. That was my first big wall in this nice. area. Okay. Um, and uh, it, it wasn't super impressive, but it holds up. It looks it looks great for what the building was. Whenever you do something that's on brick that doesn't have a background color, it's mm. very unforgiving. Sure. You, you can't mess it up. 
So, you know, for my first one, it, I'm, I'm not not proud of it. <laughs> um, but that was the, the first one that I got in the city. And then um, I was still actively doing street art. And then when people started piecing together who I was, then people were like, well, no, I want a Jaybird piece because I know who you are because I've seen you on the trash cans in Plaza or, you know, I've saw, cool. I saw you on this piece, you know, and then, you know, once I was able to build a name for myself, there was, you get those people that want a piece because of who you are. And, I, you know, that was my first time experiencing that. Now, you know, I'm not... You know, just put it out there. It's like, I'm not killing it. I'm not out there on the level of, like, some of my heroes that are friends of mine that are out there doing it. But it's it's sustainable, you know? Like, um, It fills your soul, and you're making money doing it. Right. Is... It, I, I mean, it, I, com- I do complain because I'm a complainer. <laughs> but it, like, you know, there's really nothing to complain about. Like, I spray paint for a living. Right. You know? And, I, and I, even my, my part-time it's creative and they're understanding like they know you know that you know that career comes first like if there's walls to paint i'm painting walls and you know i really appreciate them and and i give my best to you know my little part-time but my little part-time is just like if i don't have any walls at least i can pay studio rent right you know so the theme of this podcast this chapter is Queen City Makers and you've talked about it a lot but we haven't really kind of dug in but you've talked about the people like your mentors and you've talked about your community you've talked about the bands that you've played with that came and supported you at at Heist to to, you know for your art show and you've talked about all these people that surrounding you and that's been a common theme as we've worked through chapter two Um, who what does the Queen City community of makers of artists mean to you like who has who has helped you? Who have been those special people? And I mean, you don't have to name names because I know sometimes you're like, oh, I, I'm leaving out 17 people because sometimes it's so big. Yeah, but it's yeah, it's so hard when you start naming names because sure. you want to name everybody. But I mean, there's there's um, there's definitely people that stand out. Now, when it comes to my current mural career, um, Osiris Rain is the biggest shout out because um, I had the opportunity to work as his assistant. Um, and while I didn't get direct instruction on what I was doing, like he understood that I was competent and at least the construction way, like this is a job site, you know? Mm. And uh, he kind of threw me to the wolves and this is what we need to get done and get it done. And even though I was just doing fills because he's the magic maker, sure. you know, but working with him as his assistant gave me the opportunity to put eight eight hours behind a spray can like the only way to get that muscle memory back to get can control back is to spend that many hours behind a can if you can you know make a little bit of money while you're doing it like you know find a way to make a little bit of money to do what you love um you know osiris provided me a way to make a little bit of money doing what i love and um you know i got to be a little part of some really beautiful pieces that i made and then, um, you know, we were connected through Joel. And like I said, you know, meeting Joel and, and, and Matt that would found the Tough Ass Crew, like um, we were kind of founding members of Tough Ass Crew, which is just a collective of friends. And, and the Tough Ass Crew name is like... It's you sound a, like a gang, by the way. You sound like you're going right. to beat the it, crap out of somebody. It's supposed yeah. to, yeah. With, it, the reason why it's called the Tough Ass Crew is like we are the least 
toughest. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, it was like one of the dorkiest dudes in the room, and that's why the like, Tabasco was funny. Yeah. Um, and then you know, uh, you know, Matt opening the Tap Gallery not only gave me a platform, but a lot of people a platform to to show art and sell art and be you know actually root art into what used to be our art district you know root art back into Noda where it's it's you know being forced out um but you know growing up um you know all the musicians that I looked up to that end up being you know my friends and and, and comrades you know they they help shape you know shape the way of like how I do things and um you know my friend Courtney getting me my first job because she believed in me she's like I can do this you know um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's all about community, um, and uh, I, you know, I host a lot of events um, in in Charlotte, and you know, I never make any money at it. It's it's never about that. It's about you know trying to create a platform for other artists that did for me. Like wow. I would like good. I would like to bring artists that 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 need a platform and do shows. Um, you know, Flux Galleries, they've, they've been great to me. Um, I've had the opportunity to show and sell through them. Um, you know, Flux, Flux Galleries has been like a great connection. Um, you know, some of the local businesses that believed in me, like in my first show was at Heist Brewing. Um, you know, I've done a couple of really awesome events for Protagonist Brewing. You know, they, they've been supportive. Um, you know, PBRs come to my side a couple of times. Nice. You know, um, everybody needs PBR to come to your side yeah, at some exactly. point. Exactly. Right. Um, so, um, I, I just community. It's all about community, and 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 those relationships that you make, and the inspiration that you get from the conversations you have, like the conversations that Matt and Joel and I had in those early days. You know, in the beginning of Tough Ass Crew, just sitting there and thinking about what if we did this. And if we were going to do this, how would you do it? Right. You know, and that's all that is, is planting seeds. I'm all about planting seeds. And that's what the community is. Um, you know, putting the idea out there, even if you're not going to follow through, as long as you're putting the idea out there, someone's going to follow through. Um. And Mush, I mean, I, I think that we've, we've captured it all as far as, you know, creating that general theme for Queen City Makers and what bringing these people together. It's also been pretty rad for me because what we've done by meeting a lot of these people and reaching out to a lot of these Queen City Makers is we've kind of made a whole new network. And one of the things we're talking about at the end of chapter two is to get all of you guys together. Like, and these would this would be a wild party because <laughs> some of the people that are have been on chapter two, I mean, you know Joel, um, but some of these other wild people, like it, it would be a pretty fun gathering where we could just, you know, tip a glass back and talk about all the cool stuff that we make and paint and all of that stuff. But this has been amazing, Mush, right? Jaber, thank you so much. This has been a really, really good conversation. Where can people go to learn more about you and what you're doing? Um, so on Insta, you can find me at jaber.the.vandal. Uh, and you can go to tinkerbirdcreative.com um, and see some of the stuff that I've done. Um, those, those are the best places to catch up with me. Yeah, we'll make sure we have links to that in the show notes. Um, in a second, I'm going to ask you to lead us out in a toast of your choice. Before we do that, I want to begin 
to a big shout out to Afton Puppin Pizza for taking care of us as they have for all of this chapter. Um, if you're in the area, come check them out. If you come visit us, we will bring you here. Um, but thank you for making this chapter happen. So we really appreciate that. Jaybird, as we always do, would you please lead us out in a toast yeah, of your this choice? This one is very near and dear to my heart. This is the one that I always use for any time that my friends are together. May the best days of our past be the worst days of our future. Cheers, boys. Our storyteller today was Jaybird the Vandal. You should check out more about him and what he does by checking out his Instagram at Jaybird the Vandal with periods in between the words and his website, TinkerbirdCreative.com, both of which are linked in the show notes. And that does it for this episode of the Storyteller's Tavern. We hope you enjoyed and will join us next time. Until then, you can find us on Instagram at sttavernpod or at storytellerstavernpod.com. That's tellers with an S at the end. If you or a maker you know have a story that you'd like to share at the tavern or just want to drop us a line, you can send us a message on Instagram or reach out to us at contact at storytellerstavernpod.com. But until next time, keep making cool stuff, do good, and be well. Hey, before you go, we just want to give another big shout out to Afton Pub and Pizza here in Concord, North Carolina, who are making this whole chapter possible. Uh, If you ever come to visit, chances are good that you'll wind up here. Uh, But until then, you can check them out online at aftonpubandpizza.com. Thanks, everyone.